Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 12, bringing traditional Chinese medicine into the 21st century. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to Fusion Health Radio. If you're one of our loyal fans, thanks for tuning in again. And if this is your first time tuning in, uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael Smith about traditional Chinese medicine, something that he is very well versed in. And uh, before we get too far into the subject of what we've been up to, maybe we should just give folks an introduction to who you are, Michael. Okay, so I practice integrative medicine. I combine the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. I've been at it for 20 years. I feel like I should get my walker out and start <laughs> limping around. Hey, dear listener, Michael's not that old. He just started when he was like 12. <laughs> um, and traditional Chinese medicine is part and parcel to uh, the rest of the world of medicine that you subscribe to. Mm -hmm. uh, there's functional medicine mixed into that. There's also acupuncture. Yep. Um, uh, anything else? I teach Qigong, uh, martial arts, something called neurosomatic therapy, um, meditation. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, fitness training, you know, strength training, stuff like that. Right. Full service shop. <laughs> well, maybe you can hear it in Michael's voice. He's being a little shy talking about whatever he's up to. But uh, listen, if you, if you keep tuning into the rest of the podcast, you'll hear that he knows what he's, he, he actually knows what he's talking about. <laughs> um, on the last uh, podcast, episode 11, we talked about uh, medical marijuana, or marijuana rather, and whether or not it was medicine or a drug. Uh, Michael, do you want to give us a quick recap? Uh, yeah, we just sort of looked at the history of uh, human evolution with respect to the cannabis plant, uh, which I think is interesting because uh, our species has, you know, hundreds if not thousands of receptors for different cannabinoids in our body, in our brain, our muscles, liver, heart. So we've either spent a lot of time with that plant or some other reason why we, you know, produce receptors for cannabinoids, which I don't know, I can't think of another possible reason. So basically uh, what we learned or what I learned in that podcast anyways was that... Um, just because of our nature and how we um, played around with the hemp plant uh, many, 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 many years ago, um, our body is actually designed to be in tune with that plant. Yeah, I mean, it's our best source of rope, which becomes our best <laughs> source, of, source of clothing. Plus, the seeds are nutritious. The, the leaves are really nutritious. Once you heat it up, you free up the uh, cannabinoids or THC that's psychoactive. So I just picture our early primitive ancestors happily stoned munching on, you know, mildly cooked salad or, you know, whatever else they do as they're making some rope. <laughs> you know, improving our associative reasoning and perhaps being one of the driving forces for the av actual evolution of the size of our brain. Interesting stuff. Uh, and again, um, uh, the upshot of the uh, the whole podcast was that uh, it is more of a medicine um, and a very powerful medicine at that. Yeah, I mean, now, now that we know about the different strains, you know, there's the indica strain, sativa strain, and each of them having a different uh, tendency uh, in terms of influencing us around our, our health behavior, uh, stress, physiology, concentration, or <laughs> ability to concentrate. Um, then there's... Uh, being aware that depending on how high of a temperature you actually prepare the plant, you're going to free up unique uh, cannabinoids that have their own therapeutic benefit. So, I mean, the science of it's getting really, really uh, potent. And uh, I mean, if you're, you know, on social media at all, you're probably seeing all of the amazing things happening around uh, Parkinson's disease, autoimmune disease, things like colitis and Crohn's disease, uh, especially the young kids with uh, various kind of tremor disorders. Uh, you know, within a space of a day or two of eating some cannabinoids, you know, going from kids that are barely present to kids that are completely themselves. And again, I thought that was the most interesting thing that, um, I mean, as I've, I've, as I've noted anecdotally over the years, marijuana isn't the kind of thing that actually brings one very present. <laughs> it tends to make one pretty spacey, but the actual uh, medicinal component of the, of the plant, um, uh, is what's actually uh, helping in healing. 
Yeah, so again, there's different strains. Some strains are more uplifting and helping with focus and concentration. Other ones are the opposite. They're meant to make you fall asleep. But there's the distinct cannabinoid uh, class we call THC, and they're psychoactive. And there's another class that fall under what we call CBD. And that one doesn't really have much of a psychoactive effect in the sense of making you high. It actually can um, mediate or uh, clear the if you have too much THC in your system and you're a little too high. Um, you could use the CBD to actually clear that out of your system. And uh, CBD and its class of molecules are super, super effective at reducing inflammation throughout your whole body, as well as actually modulating your immune system in a way that makes it less uh, grumpy if you're, you know, it's prone to infection and inflammation and other stuff. So uh, it's profound, and especially with the, when it comes to your brain. So when it comes to your brain, there's uh, obviously Alzheimer's, but there's depression, anxiety, insomnia, ADHD, autism, a lot of other things. And all of those are mediated by the amount of immune system um, distress and the actual local inflammation in the frontal part of your brain. So by using the cannabinoids and, and other um, medicinals, you can actually reduce the inflammation in the frontal part of the brain, which frees up all those neurotransmitters to do good things instead of to just be used up as uh, fuel in the, anti in the inflammatory kind of cascade. So it's amazing what I've seen with people who get onto you know uh, anything that's going to reduce inflammation in the brain, uh, especially cannabinoids, because in the space of three weeks, they went from depressed and anxious and having insomnia to oh, I'm me again, and my thoughts are pretty much what they used to be, and I'm no longer anticipating the, the crazies coming out one way or the other. Yeah, very uh, very powerful uh, indeed, the way that uh, is described, and uh, I know some people who've actually experienced that. Uh, patients of yours, Michael, here in town that I've actually uh, witnessed <laughs> that sort of thing, being like, wow, you're actually a real person again, and you don't look so damn tired anymore. That's pretty awesome. Um, so, you know, at the, at the ground level, certainly I don't know um, all of the science behind what uh, cannabinoids or uh, anything in cannabis actually does. I just see it from from my level, mm -hmm. if you will, and uh, think it's a pretty pretty amazing thing. Um, was there more about uh, wrapping up the description of last uh, week's podcast? Well, I think I, there's one thing I want to say uh, because now I'm effectively kind of a partner in a dispensary and I spend a few hours a week helping people get legal access to medical cannabis. Uh, the reason I'm doing that is to try and create, the, I guess, an obvious example of using uh, cannabis as medically and medicinally as possible. So when people come to sit down with me, I mean, they're all anxious to get the, the letter that gets them permission to go to, go to a dispensary and and get cannabis. But my my conversation always goes to, here's the kind of cannabinoids that are going to actually do the most to deal with the root cause of why you're having these symptoms. All right? Here's some other therapeutic protocols using other kind of nutraceuticals or Chinese herbs or uh, therapeutic diets or exercises that are going to help people actually resolve the reason why that they want medical anything. Because if we don't do that, um, in my humble opinion, Cannabis, medical cannabis, is just going to be the next new tranquilizer, band-aid, antidepressant, you know, kind of thing. And we have all these things in modern science. There's antidepressants, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, and it's kind of like there's all these anti-things. But, you know, what about some pro things, you know, like actually, you know, things that produce better health, you know, globally or systemically or specifically. And then when people, you know, leave that conversation, they go to get their cannabis, but they're also inspired and motivated to change other things so they're going to get the optimal benefit from cannabis, but change their relationship with their health and symptoms. So instead of using cannabis defensively to just mask symptoms, now they're using it to proactively like restore function in the body. Well, it's it's interesting to hear that you have that uh, bigger perspective around health. I mean, certainly that's the whole idea around Fusion Health Radio and why we're talking. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came to know you as a patient as well, um, seeing your perspective on health and realizing that it was very uh, broad and uh, focused on why does this not work mm -hmm. as opposed to here, put this bandaid on and take two of these and call me in the morning, um, which is a totally different uh, approach to medicine. One that totally worked for me, mm -hmm. um, big time. So let's, uh, let's take that as a segue then. So, right. um, as you just said it, the idea of approaching cannabis as a part of a bigger health picture, let's talk about a bigger part of the health picture that you know, which is traditional Chinese medicine. So okay. uh, today's episode is uh, bringing TCM into the 21st century. Um, 
you were actually, I think, away for the past couple of weeks uh, on that as well? Uh, yeah, so I got invited to teach uh, some Qigong for a Qigong teacher training program. If you don't know what Qigong is, it's like Chinese yoga or Taoist yoga. And I was also teaching uh, some ancestral nutrition. Um, and um, so, yeah, so Qigong, ancestral nutrition, and then a little sort of, you know, impromptu martial arts demo thing. <laughs> Cool. And uh, sorry, where did you do that again? Uh, part of it was in Ottawa, I believe, and part of it was in uh, uh, Gatineau, which is in Quebec, just across the border between Ottawa and uh, Quebec. You were there teaching a fairly comprehensive um, uh, Chinese medicine approach, if you will? Uh, I, I guess so. It was more ancestral nutrition from an evolutionary perspective, and then Qigong, which is all about Chinese medicine. But uh, because they're, the students are training to become Qigong teachers, we were just making sure that they all, you know, knew what they were doing and had some examples on how to teach different skills. And cool. And um, well, that just makes me wonder. I mean, with the comprehensive uh, experience and education you have around things like Qigong and martial arts and uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture, that all had to start somewhere. <laughs> you didn't just walk up and, you know, buy that diploma. <laughs> to, where did it all start? Well, I've been interested in natural medicine and healing since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in the bush, as I've probably mentioned on several podcasts, without TV or radio, so there's not much to do except, you know, hunt, trap, track, ride around your, your horse and, you know, learn new things. Um one of my grandparents is a First Nations person, and she uh, sort of showed us a few little things around um, how to become more aware, uh, you know, with, you know, uh, perception and stuff like that while you're outside in nature and things. So you just become more uh, aware of the what's called the sources of life, of the life around you, because if you're going to hunt something, you need to know what it's looking for. So we just spend a lot of time in nature just paying attention to to the seasons, to the behavior of animals, to different plants and kind of, you know, basically what they did and which mushrooms were food and which mushrooms would kill you and, you know, you know, just basic stuff. So I don't know, it was, a pretty much just a practical, you know, really, I guess I just developed a relationship with practical knowledge, you know, cause that, I mean, there's nothing abstract when you're, you know, living hand to mouth in nature. <laughs> it, was, it was a very, uh, hands-on, um, childhood if you will yeah yeah neat and um as you got older uh, what did you do with that information well we moved to the world as i like to call it um when i was 10 and then i got into martial arts and then we moved to another place and i ended up with this really like my, my first real like serious martial arts master we trained for years together probably six hours a day um and uh I mean, that kind of commitment and inspiration and uh, accountability changes your mindset. Because I went from being a punk teenager to, you know, basically someone training to be like a Taoist priest, Shaolin monk, you know, I don't know. <laughs> That's all I was into. And because my teacher was very much about uh, traditional knowledge, you know, classics and stuff like that, I'd always go to the bookstores and look for anything on martial arts or meditation or Qigong and when I was 17, I came across a translation of the book called the uh, Neijing, uh, which is sort of the, you know, classic, uh, original text in Chinese medicine. And so there I was at 17 reading through this, uh, it was kind of funny. It was in English, but it was translated into English from German and the German was translated from Chinese. So, you know, hence then I've seen much more clear things like learning out of Chinese to get into it in Chinese. But so sorry again, the name of the book was the Neijing means the internal classic. Okay or the classic of internal medicine. So uh, I'm reading through that and it's, it's you know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bright and that's, you know, nice to be, but it's also a bit of a failing because you're always looking for something to really challenge you. And I think that was the first thing I read that completely challenged me because a lot of it was, you know, it seemed abstract because it was so uh, written so referentially around nature and cycles and seasons and, and other stuff that... Uh, but I knew there was something in there that was really, you know, like hardcore useful and practical. But it, it was like, it made me do a lot of mental hoop jumping and then learning more about Chinese language and other stuff. Uh, so you could say I kind of handed in my adolescence party time to end up studying all this stuff to get really into it. Um, sounds like was, you, sounds like you were a pretty nerdy kid. Uh, well, I was, actually I was, I was the opposite of that up until we moved to Ontario and, I mean, it was in a way a relief because we were out. The people I was hanging out with as a kid, we were all going towards some pretty serious trouble. 
so I, when I got to Ontario and then met this uh, teacher and started studying it, I, I just had this intuition that this might be a really good decision to just focus on things that I really like to do that don't get me in trouble with, you know, my principal or the law or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good idea. And so that was when you were a um, teenager. Yeah, so I started studying with him and the classics at 17. And as you got older, where did you go with that? Oh, uh, I was about 24 when I was, I moved back to the West Coast and found a whole bunch of new teachers. And one of my teachers, uh, who I think of as Yoda, because he was, you know, so uh, way out there at a high level with all this stuff. Was he short with big ears, too? Um <laughs> Well, he's shorter, but uh, <laughs> normal ears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, and um, his students just blew me away. So having a chance to meet him was just, I mean, it's like hanging out with Yoda or something. And um, we got to do some work together. And he basically said in his best English, uh, and then with a translator to make sure that I got it, he says, you know, you're good enough at hurting people. It would be a really great idea if you spent some time committed to learning to heal people or help people. So he was speaking about your uh, your martial arts background. Yeah, and he thought that uh, you should get some balance. Well, I guess you could put it that way. But his 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 thing was more. He said, you know, you know, when we got the translator in there, he says, you know, a lot of things, you know, around martial arts and qigong and meditation are very intuitive, and he's a very intuitive healer guy as well as a insanely gifted martial artist and he was just saying his intuition was that i'm here uh i'll do more good in the world as a healer than i'll do in the world teaching more cops and prison guards and army people to bunk each other over the head hmm. and uh i guess you took that to heart i did both i went off and continued developing i just opened up a martial arts school um on the west coast in british columbia and was still training with other teachers uh but I started sort of sniffing around opportunities to study acupuncture, Chinese medicine. And I was actually, uh, literally it was four days before I sent a bunch of checks to a university in China uh, to commit to going to the study there. Um, I went to this uh, kind of, I don't know, fundraiser for free Tibet. And uh, again, four days before I send off all the checks to China, I meet these people who invite me to come and study with this uh, Taoist master, Chinese doctor, um, basically in an oral tradition for free. And where was that? In Vancouver. So you didn't have to fly to China? No. But we had to work our butts off because it was an oral tradition, and if you didn't keep up, you basically were left behind. And we had to pay part of the rent for the space where we were studying and then practicing and and, and uh, doing our um, practicums and internships and all of that. So by the time I was 20, so I started studying with him at 27. But after I finished the my training, it was quite a weird thing. I was hoping to get into a van and you know go up and down the west coast from I don't know, Tuktoyok Tuk down to Chile and back in a Volkswagen van, stopping at beaches, giving people massages or something to just take a break from all of the studying I'd started since I was 17 and. Uh, instead, I got lured into coming to Nelson, BC to start a school of Chinese medicine. So came here and did that and uh, taught for five years uh, next to my partner in the school, one of my partners in the school. So, okay, hang on. Before you get yeah. into that story, you yeah. just sort of said that casually. Oh, I just <laughs> came to Nelson and started a Chinese medicine school. Yeah. Uh, that's something pretty significant. What was the name of the school? Or It's still here. Yeah. Yeah. And the school is? Uh, the Academy of Classical Oriental Sciences. Uh, was there much else being taught that way in BC or even in Canada? Well, there's other schools that have started back in the 70s. Um, I'm thinking yeah. probably in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they, they were about 1,700 hours for the whole thing. When we launched our program, it was the first five-year full-time like doctor of Chinese medicine uh, curriculum, I think, in the Western world. And uh, it was 3,200 hours. Wow. 3,200 hours over five years? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was when? Uh, 1996. Wow, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying that facetiously because you're not. Yeah. I mean, you started that when you were 27. Uh, uh, well, actually, I was 29 or 30 when the school started. Okay, close enough. Yeah. Um, and so uh, being in Nelson, uh, being focused on uh, education and teaching and that sort of thing, um, as I know you, you're the kind of guy that goes, oh, um, I'm really, 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 really busy. What else can I do? <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm just curious uh, that that whole process for you uh, 
being involved with the school, um, what other avenues uh, sort of came up for you at the time? Uh, well, I was, like I said, I taught there for five years and I uh, kind of eventually built this other, you know, clinic and I got into functional medicine and then my son was born and um, I came to realize that administrative paperwork is the bane of my existence. <laughs> so I kind of gradually backed away from the, the Chinese medicine school um, to spend more time with my, my family and my son and um, try and focusing on the, the functional medicine and kind of this new direction in my clinic. And then I guess that was 2001 or two. And then a couple of years later, I had this weird epiphany and I decided to start another school. It's called the Neurosomatic Therapy Institute. Um, so, sorry, Neurosomatic Therapy Institute. Yep. And that's something you just coined or you, yep. hmm, okay, well, so you got my curiosity there. <laughs> Go. So, um, it became kind of an interesting thing to me around uh, how we practice acupuncture, uh, things I learned studying martial arts around instinctual behavior, flinch response patterns, the way people deal with trauma. And I had been practicing medicine for, I don't know, I guess around 10 years at the time, and, or close anyway. And it, I think there's this thing that happens around the 10-year cycle of being in any kind of profession. You just sort of you know, it falls into place in, in a way that's unique to you. You're going to get it your way. So I guess I was starting to really get how I got acupuncture and how I got spending, you know, my, my 40 hours a week in a room, with, a room with people trying to figure out how to help them. And um, I had this little epiphany of what if I started applying acupuncture based on the way people are holding themselves uh, somatically, which means how you, the felt sense of your, you know, muscles and bones and your body. Uh, yeah. So the way you feel in your body based on how much trauma you're holding onto. And there's several, uh, I call them layers, uh, of distinct ways we actually ramp up our, our, uh, flinch response and how we cringe and hold ourselves in our body based around how much danger you feel like you're in from the outside in. And if you have enough, uh, aggression or shame or other stuff, you're also kind of guarding yourself from what's coming up from the inside out. So, okay, just, just to be clear, um, neuro is what you're thinking. Uh, that and all your neuropathways, neurotransmitters, and nervous system. And somatic is? How you feel in your body. Okay. So you connect those two in um, some therapeutic way. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you identified that, uh, but what was the sort of, I guess, um, the medicine behind that. What was the the, the benefit there? Yeah, so, so it's a hands-on healing process. So it starts okay. starts with what would look like uh, manual therapy, like massage, and then it gets more subtle around what's called myofascial traction and release, which excites certain tissues in the body that actually hold your posture together. So the idea basically is your central nervous system remembers you based on how it reaches through your body, you know, your nervous muscles and bones, into the physical world. So if you're uh, really fit, you've got a great posture, you're really flexible, your you know, joints are open, you like to dance, um, your central nervous system reaches into the world and feels like a rock star. Uh, whereas if you're walking around with slumped shoulders and clenched fists and a clenched jaw and a furrowed brow and not really breathing very deep, um, you know, uptight or <clears throat> feeling totally collapsed and flaccid, it can go either way. Um, your central nervous system reaches into the world and feels less confident, less adaptable, more in more danger, you know, more closed off. And there's lots of different classical kinds of embodiment patterns and stuff. But by using manual therapy, the, the myofascial traction, acupuncture, subtle aspects of what we now would call kind of energy work, um, people started um, releasing huge amounts of trauma or memory of themselves that was less functional. And over, over a series of treatments, a lot of people were, you know, becoming themselves because their, their, the part of their brain below the part of the brain that talks started to feel better about the world. And that whole process then, that whole process of, um, having the body feel better about how it is in the world, um, affected, sorry, I, I would, I would imagine that would affect everything from, you know, I mean, even if I sit up straight. As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, geez, how am I sitting? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's going to affect my disposition. Yeah, it's been uh, this sort of class of opportunities that kind of came around in the late 60s, early 70s when a bunch of guys like Berkeley that were studying to be psychotherapists and psychiatrists started doing a bunch of acid. Yes, I mean LSD. And um, they started developing this whole idea of a body-centered psychotherapy instead of just a talk-centered psychotherapy. Hmm. 
And because um, somewhere in that trip that they took, they realized that everything was connected, right? Well, I mean, it kind of fits in with our primal paradigm episode a few podcasts ago around how much opportunities we have um, dealing with our health from below our eyes or, you know, below language because there's so many opportunities there. So this has been a pretty consistent theme. You know, it's been around for quite a long time. I just had my particular little, you know, bonk on the head that says, no, you should really work on this and figure it out. Hmm. And so that was part of your practice for a time or still is? Uh, well, I started playing with it, um, I guess, experimenting on myself and patients who felt like that uh, was, you know, uh, relevant to their healing at the time. And then I started sharing ideas with other professionals in the area Then partnered up with a really gifted massage therapist. Um, and we started training people. And then we started the actual school on the curriculum, and I think we had that going for two or three years where we were just training all these people on this, and the more we taught people, obviously, the more it developed into a coherent uh, process and, and system. And I still teach weekend workshops every once in a while on it. It's probably the coolest insight I've ever had, you know, with respect to my ability to help people. Well, there's a lot of information you've got in that head of yours. And uh, what I'm curious to know is... Um, so you, this whole idea of uh, neurosomatic therapy, uh, you've got everything you know around uh, martial arts and Qigong and Chinese medicine and acupuncture and all that sort of stuff. And here we are podcasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, da, 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 welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> so you've got all this, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, ancient wisdom uh, that you've embodied over the years. And it's progressed and moved through you and, uh, I guess, improved through you over the years. Uh, how do you see it uh, being... Um, something that people can actually access today. I mean, the podcast is one great way to get that information out there. Mm-hmm. What more can you say about how to get uh, traditional Chinese medicine into the 21st century? Well, I actually do a professional training series of uh, you know webinars and talks and stuff like that called Bringing Traditional Chinese Medicine into the 21st Century. And um, it's sort of like an ethics class in, in the sense that um, there's a couple of different ways that things can go really uh, good around using traditional terminology. And then there's ways that it can go kind of the opposite, which is not so good <laughs> around so, the terminology. Uh, when you say terminology, terminology specific to uh, TCM? Well, I mean, it's not just Chinese medicine. It's any, uh, I don't know, professional en- endeavor that relies on a language other than the one spoken between, say, the professional and the patient. You know, with Western medicine, we're using Latin, you know, stubbornly, you know, we're going to have all these complicated names for things that are, are referential to the origin of Western medicine, but are in the way because, you know, you walk into, you know, your doctor's office and they give you some, you know, crazy thing like myasthenia gravis or, you know, some other really hard to pronounce thing. And you're left with a kind of abstract haze of, well, somebody knows what's wrong with me. And I think I could say it, you know, but I don't think I could spell it. Right. And and I'll go and take my, you know, my prescription and my, you know, prognosis home. And, you know, well, I guess with the internet now that things are different, we can type stuff in and somebody can spell it and, and at least get some information. But, you know, Western medicine has gotten away with the kind of magic sort of Jedi trick of these are not the droids you're looking for in the sense of stop thinking about this. Just take your diagnosis, take your treatment, off you go. And it's unfortunately happened the same way with Chinese medicine, where, you know, obviously it's in another, another language and way more potently in another language because it's actually taught and practiced in China in Chinese, where I don't think, you know, Western medicine is actually taught and practiced in Latin anywhere right now. But the terminology is also potentially a, a positive or a negative for people. You know, you come into a clinician and they say, well, you have damp heat and yin deficiency, you know, which is pretty common for people in the West. Maybe a few ways it can go. One is you acknowledge that because you've done some reading or you've listened to podcasts about Chinese medicine or, you know, however you access that information. And you have an understanding of what dampness is, what heat is, you know, how yin and yang are expressive for different sort of systems or tendencies of the body. And that, that damp heat with yin deficiency is, is for you some really great shorthand because it encompasses maybe two pages of, of actual, um, you know, specifically, uh, usable opportunities around your diet, your lifestyle, your exercise, and other things to improve that situation. It also gives you a sense of why you're given the herbs you're given, why certain acupuncture points are used if you know about that or if you don't. Uh, at least you can can acknowledge or accept the practitioner as, you know, 
given that shorthand, you know, Dampedian indeficiency, um, that allows them to make a whole bunch of really complex decisions specific to your case, your constitution, your age, your sex, your, you know, uh, health of your primary organ systems, and then they'll give you, you know, what they consider to be, you know, your uh, treatment program. Right now, if you don't know what those words mean. And I'm, I'm going to say that the majority of people probably wouldn't understand what that is. Yeah. And that's because they're so used to being told that they have some kind of itis mm -hmm. or osis yeah. or <laughs> whatever it is that a Western doctor would tell them. Yeah. So again, the, and the reason why I bring up this, this subject and why I do the kind of talks that I do around it is, um, if you don't know what damp, damp heat and indeficiency actually means in the sense of tangible, practical uh, things you can do day to day with that, there's sort of a split that happens. One split is kind of a dissociative thing, the suspension of disbelief. So I got a weather report and I'm just going to pretend that not knowing what that means is okay. And that's the dissociative part. I'll just come home, honey, I'm home, and I got a weather report and a bag of, you know, weird herbs were supposed to boil up, and I'm not allowed to eat sugar anymore, and apparently stress is bad, and this and that, and <laughs> and um, they poked me in the weird places with needles, and, you know, I fell asleep and woke up and felt better, and, you know, I'm not sure all what's going on, but I have to find confidence and confidence for most people is about consistency, predictability, and some kind of understanding. So if you don't understand the terminology, again, you're kind of on this sort of tightrope, thin ice of, I hope somebody knows what's going on here. Yeah, it's almost like a blind faith in whatever it is the practitioner actually put in that little small bag. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's the term, maybe not, we'll, we'll see. Because um, then there's the other side of what goes wrong for people. And I can take in my mind, because I've seen this so many times, you know, a young person, you know, they're into their tai chi and their yoga and their meditation and they're exploring with you know their diets or their essential oils and their meditations and their i don't know vipassana retreats and they're really proactively trying to improve their uh state of being their mindset you know maybe being more of service in the world because they're conscious people but there's this natural referential thing we do with terminology from other languages if it's china chinese language if it's i don't know native languages get you know appropriated pretty intensely and now this person's walking around with this, you know, almost arrogant kind of swagger. Man, I got dampied and yin deficiency, so I'm going to, you know, that's my thing. And I can just rub it in everybody's face and talk about all the things that I know about it or don't know about it. But now there's this exaggeration of um, the potential of that terminology to help you, right? And there's a lot of people who don't know very much at all about what those terms actually imply. But now they're in this kind of weird, arrogant, empowered uh uh, referential thing, which I mean, in terms of psychiatry, I mean, that's, that's the gateway to where most people start to really go wrong if they are going to go wrong, you know, and it's the same as that sort of relatively passive aggressive thing of just going, well, I hope somebody knows what's really going on here, mm. but I'll just, you know, suck it up and drink my bitter tea and, you know, avoid sugar and eat a lot of celery. And, you know, again, there's that weird thing of, a, it would be probably neat if I knew what that meant. And I'm sure that people on the other side of the coin who are walking around so full of the terminology and, you know, their, their sense that, you know, that makes them a better person or special in some way, you know, they're also in a precarious place, which is, I'm sure, on some level going, I wonder what that really means. I mean, I love knowing it means something, but I wonder what that really means. Well, I've had the experience uh, where I've met people who wear their illness like a badge of honor. And they have entitlement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I have this thing, and if you don't pay attention to me in this particular way, well, then you're disrespecting me and blah, blah, blah. It's got nothing to do with health. You know, it's more about, um, I don't know, positioning or uh, just trying to be um, taken care of or pay attention to me or, you know. Yeah, well, some people use Crying it. wolf. That's, yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. Well, I mean, clinically, we call it malingering, where a person sort of takes the opportunity to be sick and takes it farther than maybe they actually need to symptomatically because they didn't get enough attention as kids or whatever. I mean, most people who are sick are sick. I mean, it's not like, you know, everybody who has an illness is malingering or being entitled, but there are people who definitely, you know, take advantage of it. Right. You know, and that just adds another symptom. <laughs> okay. So, so, okay. So let's, let's just bring this back then. So we were talking about bringing TC, the traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So these three sort of examples of what you've given here, yeah. um, the, um, I don't know what the doctor just said, but I got to drink this tea and mm -hmm. not eat sugar and 
get stuck with needles and whatever, I just hope it works, to uh, malingering, to use mm-hmm. the word that you just used, where they're sort of wearing it as a badge of honor and forcing people to pay attention. Like, what's this sort of um, healthy <laughs> prescription for bringing that into the 21st century? Um, how does that actually, um, how, how, do, how do you actually translate whatever it is you know so that me as the patient actually gets it in a way where I can actually do something with it? Yeah, well, that's my f- sort of hobby, if you will, uh, training clinicians, you know, with the, the material that would, you know, happen in this kind of a webinar around going through all the terminology and, you know, making it make sense is, is just starting from scratch and redefining the primary terminology of Chinese medicine in a way that's fairly easy, you know. So if you're a clinician and you want to just sort of like a, a two minute thing on dampness or a two minute thing on yin deficiency or other things that you can actually share with your patients in English that refers to what we know from the microscope or basic, you know, biochemistry, anatomy, physiology. Um, I'd say about 95% of people want that information because I usually ask people, okay, so would you like your Chinese medicine diagnosis in the classical sense or would you like me to explain what's going on just sort of more in the kind of down here on the ground around physiology? Would you like me to speak in Chinese or <laughs> would you like me to speak in English? <laughs> and, you know, there's a certain percentage of people who want both. You know, I'd like to know which of my, you know, primary organ systems are being invaded by you know, the primary pathogens of Chinese medicine, because again, it's really amazingly effective shorthand. You know, you put a lot of information into a, a, like a sentence, assuming you know what the term terminology means. So uh, sometimes I'll share that with people and then just sort of walk through what it means, you know, more around just functional, you know, basic physiology. Cause most people are like, Oh, okay, that makes sense. And that reminds me of what my brother is going through and you know, what my uncle had and, and other things. And the empowering thing about that is, is now people can actually go, yeah, well, I, of course I can't be eating crap and I, you know, got to exercise more and get more sleep because if I don't, I can see the A plus B equals C of the, the kind of causal frame of reference that English is very comfortable in and physiology is, you know, based in. It, it paints a clearer picture for people so they can actually see what you're talking about mm-hmm. or hear what you're saying depending yeah. on how they get information, right? Mm-hmm. So what would be a good example of, say, something that's um, in uh, Chinese or Chinese medicine um, that um, you can sort of, you know, what's that two-minute phrase or whatever it is that you can actually explain around that? What would be uh, an easy one that comes to mind? Well, the first one isn't the easiest one, but it's the most important one. Okay. And it's around the concept of qi. Qi. So we have this concept, uh, if you're new to Chinese medicine and you're just coming across it, um, the qi is this sort of subtle energy in, in the body and that it's a noun. So it's stuff, it has to be somewhere. So, I mean, and that's not completely untrue, but we can literalize it in a way in English that makes other things necessarily true, such as your meridians, uh, which are the energy pathways that acupuncture um, accesses, that now your meridians are invisible tubes for this stuff called qi to move through. And if we were to be the entitled, arrogant you know, hippie version of ourselves, we can sit there smiling, going, ha, and science is too stupid to find the invisible tubes for the invisible stuff that I'm going to store in my belly button as I meditate. Hmm. Right. And I'm not hopefully coming off too much like a jerk about this, but it's just noticing that the literal noun version of chi stops us from thinking about it because now it's a choo-choo train and that's fine. You put the needle in there and the choo-choo train, you know, gets around the tracks better or whatever. And all of the depth and the subtlety just goes away because it's now just, it's a traffic conversation. So it just becomes a, a thing that you can see, like a painting on the wall or... Um, and more like money in the bank or, you know, maybe I don't have enough cheese, so I'm on overdraft paying the interest hmm. you know, in the sense of the energy being there as a potential to drive function. So, you know, one way I, I would translate that word differently is influence. Right. So in, in the sense that each of your organs has like liver, chi, lung, chi, spleen, chi, each of your organs has a sort of tendency and a, a nature of influencing your physiology in a certain way. And, um, if you've got a really healthy liver, chi, in the sense that's totally present and it's got a good attitude and it likes its, its job, then your liver's influence in your health is going to be more optimal. Whereas if your liver, chi, or influence is weak because of caffeine, alcohol, sugar, not enough sleep, you know, working in a toxic environment or whatever, then its potential influence is less. And then other organs have to kind of make up for that. So I like the word influence as sort of a more, you know, uh, 
more inclusive version of, of, of the term of chi because it's used more in that way than by itself. Like it's not very common you're going to see the word chi by itself. It's always liver chi or, you know, the, the chi of the sun, the moon, the earth. In the sense that those things have a, a tangible influence for us and we can interact with it on that level. So again, that, uh, that word influence makes me think of how, um, how TCM looks at the whole body anyways, or the body as a whole. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very comprehensive, um, group of organs all working together on the same team, rooting yep. for the same guy. Yeah. It's kind of a functional family dynamic. Yeah. Neat. So another way I would translate the word chi, um, and I would probably use this most of the time is, uh, I translate it as circulation. Okay. So when you think about chi in general, it just implies that circulation is necessary for life. So obviously your blood circulation, <clears throat> if you don't have that, you're not going to live very long. If your circulation around respiration, breathing in and out, that isn't happening very well, not going to be here very long. And then there's more subtle circulation, you know, lymphatic cir circulation. There's the uh, circulation of hormones. There's a circulation of neurotransmitters. If you look at epigenetics, there's a circulation of cofactors and nutrients that keeps every system working. But it's based on the circulation of, uh, you know, things. So the circulation isn't the thing. It's just that things circulate on many levels, you know, depending on the global view or, you know, you can get down to a microscope or even an electron microscope and things are moving. And as long as they're moving and sharing, everything works. Hmm. And, and this brings up kind of the the most sort of obvious tangible example is the word qi in Chinese by itself is most commonly used as a word to describe the atmosphere. Okay. Ing. The atmosphere. Ing. Ing? Yeah. Because if, if, again, we go to the literal English, you know, English is a very noun-based perception of the world. I could take a nice, you know, pickle jar and fill it up with the air of the atmosphere and put the lid on and have me some chi. Okay. Right? Which would be a very English literal thing to do, and I can put it in the bank and it's mine, mine, mine. Or when you think of, and from the Chinese or more indigenous languages, language or languages are always uh, focused in on the interaction and movement, right? I mean, in the Dene language where I come from, you have to make a noun a noun. It's not, it's inherently moving until you stop it. <laughs> okay. Right. So if we think about qi meaning atmosphere-ing, and now we have the awareness that there's this cycle of carbon dioxide and oxygen moving back and forth uh, between, you know, say mammals and trees and plants. Now, we didn't know that's what was going on three or 4,000 years ago in China, but they definitely were aware that places that had lots of, you know, uh, waterfalls and jungles and plants had a certain kind of chi or influence or kind of circulation because the atmosphering was very good. Hmm. And places too high up had very little atmospheric because you start to pass out if you're climbing up in the Himalayas or whatever. So I think it's sort of through empirical experiential reasoning that, you know, that became a thing, which is okay. If that's inherent to just something invisible like air, what else is going on, you know, deeper within the body, deeper within the mind, deeper within maybe the interaction between, you know, and again, Chinese medicine coming from Taoism, coming from the indigenous people of, uh, of Asia, the understanding that whatever's coming down from the sky is actually the thing that supports life. And it engenders something in the earth that keeps pouring up from below, that keeps supporting life. So, I mean, we live in this sort of magical little thing as long as the sky keeps skying and the earth keeps earthing and life keeps lifing, you know. Life and keeps living? Yeah. Then, then we actually, you know, recognize that it's this natural dynamic. And um, as we look at, say, the terminology of what are called pathomechanisms or uh, chi or, you know, things that are bad for us, you can look at each one in the context uh, uh, of science, which we'll do in another podcast or maybe as a little webinar series or something, because I don't want to get too, too far afield with all this today. It's just to give, you know, the listeners, you know, that, that beginning of a conversation, which is, so Chinese medicine's been around a long time. It's got vast experience, lots of wisdom, and an amazing kind of shorthand. But if you don't know how to translate the shorthand into English that's inclusive of science, then we've made that weird kind of new age person assumption that we're doing something special, unique, and more than science can do. And that's not of service to our relationship with, you know, 
you know, Western medicine or people doing actual research. And in fact, what would be interesting to me would be to take Chinese medicine's understanding of the body, look at Western medicine's research and see if Chinese medicine indicates a place for research to be done to explain a Chinese medicine theory that Western medicine hasn't actually caught up with yet. Because, and that, that was a bold statement, but uh, because with a universal view, with a view that ref, reflects uh, from how nature works, it seems pretty kind of fundamentally obvious that you're just going to understand um, how things cooperate, how things influence each other in a very vast or general way. And then isn't it amazing we can, you know, dig in there with a microscope and, you know, so, some testing and stuff to really know the mechanisms of it. I've been doing that for over 20 years. Mm. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about it. I mean, it's the thing that's been most uh, profound to me in uh, learning uh, about health from the way that you describe it and prescribe it. Um is exactly that. I mean, you talk about the prescriptive, prescriptive things. Here's what's happening in and around this particular organ or this particular, you know, around, in my case, around my GI tract or around my gut health and how that affects my disposition and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's all the science-based words that you use, mm -hmm. the big, you know, 25-cent words, and then there's the everyday things that I have learned about what that all means. Um, and that's been a very... Um, healing thing to be a part of that you know to to actually um understand and appreciate the science nowhere near to the depth that you do but to be able to even go oh okay so it's you know holes in the gut mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I can get that you know yeah. like it's plain english but it's based on science and it's comprehensive uh, because it's based on the way tcm sees the world mm -hmm. as opposed to western medicine who's spitting out band-aids <laughs> at people faster than they can make them yeah, well, uh, that's why I call functional medicine Chinese medicine with a microscope. Mm -hmm. Because Chinese medicine's holistic, it's systems-based, and it's trying to understand, you know, in each individual, the ratio of dysfunction or imbalance, because it's usually a little bit different for everybody. You know, you could have 10 people coming in with colitis and have 10 different uh, therapeutic protocols based on Chinese medicine, and it's the same with functional medicine. You know, you come in, okay, well, that's autoimmune, it's inflammatory, and maybe it's because of this, or it's that, or the other thing, and we have to figure out, you know, the why for each individual, right? And one's obviously more science-based, one's more systems kind of uh, analogy-based, but they're both the most effective, you know, systems to look at health that is, I've ever seen on the planet. And I think what makes it most effective is the extent to which you go to actually make sure somebody understands what that's all about. Yeah, and I think the just to come back to that to make sure that point's really clear is, you know, if you know the why of your particular health situation, then when it comes to the how or the what to do about it day by day, you're empowered and excited and enthusiastic, hopefully, about those things, unless you're feeling punished by your lack of popcorn, <laughs> you know, or something. <laughs> Um, but there's just this different sense of now you're on the team of the people who have a, you know, a, a rational understanding around this, uh, which could also include a psycho-emotional perspective around you as a being and a, even a spiritual perspective around you and other opportunities to, to, to move ahead. So it's all about that sense of being empowered. You know, I often say this to, to patients. So now we're doing a detective, you know, reality show. Without the cameras, I'm Sherlock Holmes, you're Dr. Watson, and we're going to spend the next, you know, few weeks, perhaps even months, you know, figuring out how to more precisely assess and resolve, you know, uh, everything that's actually at the root of the imbalance in your health. Hmm. And that's a very powerful approach for uh, you as the health practitioner, but especially for the uh, for the patient. Mm -hmm. I would think that, um, I mean, again, I just come back to my own personal experience with that. That was a real kick in the pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. In a good way. You know, like, wow, <laughs> I can actually do something about this. So I'm, I'm looking at um, uh, the time on the wall that we've got here. Uh, was there anything more that you wanted to talk about uh, with TCM? Well, I think I just want to put it out there uh, to the listeners that are, you know, now into the show and glad you guys are there. Um, I'm thinking about doing a group of mini-series. So this is sort of like the introduction to a mini-series on uh, Chinese medicine and how to bring the terminology into the 21st century, um, which is a really interesting way, I guess, to learn sort of, sort of basic physiology and stuff uh, from another angle. And it's been my experience when I 
teach stuff this way that your, your typical Westerner who's going to try and learn something typically Western, we're going to go through the Chinese medicine terminology over a series of podcasts. And as we do that and describe the Western uh, science and physiology and stuff around it, uh, quite naturally, you're now learning, you know, some basic and functional physiology around some real cool shorthand terminology, which actually makes the whole thing easier to remember. So it's going to be a bit of a deeper dive geek out for people who are just listening as uh, people interested in health, uh, for patients who are interested in knowing more about their health, and uh, hopefully a pretty fun thing for clinicians or students becoming clinicians um, around just that subject around no matter what your terminology is, if it's Latin, if it's Chinese, if it's, you know, something you made up yourself, you know, Ethically, our job is to make sure our patients have the information stated to them in a way that actually empowers them and includes them and supports them in changing the things they clearly need to change to be well. Sounds like that would be a very uh, comprehensive, um, informative um, series. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) I've done it before. It goes really well, and there's a lot of good fun, too. Yeah, well, that'll be a good uh, a good next. Uh, I don't know if it'll be a segue for a next series, but uh, certainly a, a, a very uh, exciting um, series of content. Mm-hmm. That's the way I, I can describe it for sure. Uh, you've been listening to Fusion House Radio. Uh, my name is Anthony Santa. Talking with today with Dr. Michael Smith, and we've been talking about bringing traditional Chinese medicine into the 21st century, and that's something that uh, Michael's been doing for the past <laughs> 20 or so years. He's certainly got a big conversation around that. Uh, Fusion Health Radio, uh, we would love it if you uh, gave us your comments or feedback. Um, you can do so on Podbean. Uh, yep, yeah. and there's iTunes, there's Stitcher. We've got our channel on Facebook. Yeah, uh, we're all over the interweb. Uh, if you've got any kind of medical-based uh, questions or concerns, please address them directly to Michael. Uh, you can ask me, but I'll just pass them off to Michael. <laughs> I'm not the doctor here. He is. Um, I think that's uh, that's a wrap for this week. Yeah, so the easiest way to connect is uh, through yeah, Facebook slash uh, Fusion Health Radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's usually where you're going to see the content uploaded. But if you subscribe, hint, hint, please, please, to either iTunes or Stitcher uh, or Podbean, then we're going to get a better sense about, you know, who's responding, who wants to have automatic access to the to the podcast because that helps us feel inspired. Yeah, it's nice to know there's somebody at the, somebody at the end of this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, good conversation today, Michael. We'll see you next time. Yep. Cook well, eat well, and be well. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.